Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, come on, no one plans to get sick. And yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and I'm still here. I also survived our broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together, because we're all out of patience. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. A quick reminder before we get started, if you like the show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, a review maybe. It helps other people find the show that you hopefully like a lot. Or don't, either way. On the show today, bio-entrepreneur Marty Kaiser, founder of Ivy Bio Holdings, Liquid Lung, Hepgene, and Mamogen. What is a biomarker? Hint, it's not inside a box of Crayola. Biomarkers are aspects of our genes that do so much more than just determine our height, our eye color, and believe it or not, yes, our predisposition to cancer. Diagnostic tools today can be used to detect earlier, diagnose earlier, and treat better with less toxicity. And that's what Marty and his ventures are all about. In the spirit of making cancer suck less, diagnostics and biomarkers have the potential to make traditional radiation and chemo perhaps not even necessary in the first place. Enjoy the show. Marty Kaiser, thank you so much for coming in out of patience. I've been really looking forward to talking to you about, I mean, again, all the things. We have a lot in common, but besides mishpachaing out, uh, it was just genuinely exciting to meet somebody who's actually done shit that matters in healthcare on the private sector side. But let's start by introducing you. Where do you come from? What did you do? Did you go to school for anything related to what you're doing today? <laughs> what a great question. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, I'm excited to, uh, to be on this show today. But uh, I guess I'll start with your last question. The, the answer is no. You know, I did not go to school, uh, you know, for any sort of medical practice. I, I've never spent any time in, in the medical community. Um, my entire career was spent in finance. I was on Wall Street for a little more than a decade. I was raising capital for uh, various investment strategies, many of which had, um, you know, fairly, you know, heavy allocations and exposure to biotechnology, to healthcare. And so I've always been related, sort of in and around the space at least from an investment standpoint for, you know, for a very long time, um, but made the transition in 2018 away from finance, um, literally sold the home, liquidated all assets, pushed all in to create my own bio innovation studio called Ivy Bio Holdings. And, um, and, and Ivy Bio Holdings really is specializing in de novo company creation. We are literally creating companies from the ground up 
I'm controlling all of the idea generation, the branding, the marketing, the fundraising, the team building, the strategy, the execution, uh, and, and really trying to build a series of disease-specific companies uh, all centered around novel biomarkers that can unlock our ability to radically improve the way that we detect, diagnose, and treat disease. And, and so that's what I've been up to for the past uh, two and a half years. And to date, we've launched uh, three companies out of the studio, one in lung cancer called Liquid Lung, the second in liver disease called HepGene, and the third and most recent, which we launched in October of last year called Mamagen, uh, which has a flagship product in breast cancer detection, but will ultimately be evolving and growing into a pure play women's health uh, organization. And, and so it, it was sort of a, an indirect path to from finance to bio entrepreneur, but, uh, but I got here <laughs> and did it. I'll ask the question then, obviously, I say, obviously with my naive, I'm not an investor guy hat on. If you're working in that sector that isn't healthcare, the exit, the goal, the scaling, it's fairly self-evident. You, you kind of have a very linear path and established precedent on what it means to scale and grow and exit. In healthcare, it's fucked up because mm -hmm. you're developing programs, products, tools, and services in a supply-only economy. There's no demand to get an esophageal cancer test because no one wants esophageal cancer. No one wakes up and says, and I'm famous for saying this, I can't wait to be on Katruda one day and get that <laughs> clinical trial. How have you squared the circle on what scaling success and investor like expectations are in a supply only market? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I guess I pull from a, a an entrepreneur that I have a deep respect for, who I've been following for a number of years, named Peter Diamandis, who you know he has this this wonderful line that you know we are living in the golden age of innovation, and you know we now have more access to data and knowledge and capital all at our fingertips. I mean, in our iPhones, you've heard the stats, but it's true that. You have access to more information and, and more knowledge and more compute power than uh, was only uh, available to the top Fortune 100 CEOs for you know for for decades. Uh, and because of that, and and the 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 statement that he makes is in this age of innovation, uh, the next generation of billionaires will be those who solve billion person challenges. And I was really really inspired by that by that concept. And I think it ties a lot into the stakeholder capitalism discussion that's happening that that I think is very fascinating. And, um, and a lot of that just comes down to the fact that with access to data, with access to technology, with access to all different types of, of creative capital structures, whether it's crowdfunding or um, you know blockchain, it, there's all these different things that come together that allow us to do things very quickly, very efficiently. And because we can do them quickly and efficiently, there's still a wonderful profit to be made and, and at the same time be able to do good. And so I look at this, this whole opportunity, I look at the investment side of it with the social impact and the social opportunity of it. And, and it's not one versus the other the way it used to be. It's actually both. And so I look at that you know, very much from through that lens and from that perspective and so, um, you know, one of the, uh, an example of what I mean by that is, you know, in pharma, let's just say it takes on average 10 years to develop a drug. Uh, it can cost around a billion dollars and nine out of 10 times they fail. And so because of that, 
you have to just sort of logically expect that the one drug that does make it through approval has to be priced at a pretty high price point to offset all the wasted time and money and costs that went into the nine other failures. And so it's this perpetual cycle of, of just long lead times, high cost, and all of that ends up getting passed through. And, and it just distorts the whole investment profile, um, you know, which is very funny. It's, it's one of the reasons why you see you know, most venture capital funds and most venture models being this, you know, we'll invest in 10 companies, expect nine to fail and hope that one of the, the one winner pays for all the failures. It's very much correlated with what you're talking about in healthcare. And I think it's effed up too. And, and I'm here to change that uh, through unique processes and unique business models. So I'm hearing a lot of things and I'm trying to process because I don't, my, my, my job is to not think like you. My job is to think like me, but figure out that you're, <laughs> you're probably saying all the right things. What was this specifically outside maybe the enticing nature of solving a, a billion dollar problem with a billion dollar you know, solution? Why healthcare from finance? Is, was there an interconnection? Did something happen to you or someone you care about? Well, it's it started with the the finance side. I mean, that was the lens that I looked at everything through and just seeing trends, seeing opportunities, uh, believing that we're in the very early innings of a massive, massive renaissance. Um, And at the center of that renaissance is from from my standpoint, we could talk more about this if it's of interest to your your listeners, but the opportunity, the greatest opportunity here is in biomarkers. And, And so it started with this Hmm. I see something really big there. I see a massive trend. I see a massive opportunity, but it was balanced by a a deep and genuine love for people that I have always had a deep and genuine desire to help and to give back. And when I was in finance, the reality is I just wasn't feeling that I, I wasn't feeling fulfilled. You can convince somebody to move a billion dollars from one pocket to the other, and you can make a great living doing it, but you know, but it's not all that rewarding. And so it, it sort of came from that combination of those things of saying, there's a great opportunity there to make a lot of money and to create a lot of wealth, not just for myself, but you know, to save, the, save money for the system and to save money for patients and for payers. I mean, there's all kinds of economic benefit from using data and technology and biomarkers. But then there's a great social impact and it's very purpose-filled, it's very rewarding. But here's the thing that that's a little bit different. And I, I come across people and you know, your story is is an amazing story and, and people that get you know blindsided by disease and it changes their whole entire perception of things and it changes the course of their life. They you know they do great things like you have. Uh, and then there's guys like me that just say it hasn't affected me personally. Yes, I have people in my family and very close network that have either battled or you know battled and survived or battled and did not from all different types of cancers. Um, but but the way I look at it is I really wanted to get ahead of it. I didn't want to wait until it hit me personally to say, man, I wish I had leveraged my my skill set and my relationships and and my knowledge. You know, I, I wish I did this earlier. So. I'm actually on the opposite end of the spectrum where I'm just trying to do everything I can to get ahead of it before it sideswipes me or somebody in my immediate family. And, you know, and and I work really hard towards making that happen. I love the idea that, you know, most people are, uh, I don't care about it till it happens to me, but you're like the, let's try to make it not happen to other people first. (laughs) Exactly. You know, but so, so let me, let me dig into just a more of a one-on-one, like kindergarten question. What the hell is a biomarker in third grade plain English? 
It's a great question. We all have biological markers floating around in our body, and that could be a gene, it could be a, an RNA, it could be a protein, it could be a lipid, it could be a metabolite. There's all the fancy, you know, science biology, you know, for dummies 101 that it could be, but they're really just biological markers floating around in our body that carry information. And that's why we call them biomarkers. And up until this point, the primary focus on biomarkers has been on single markers, markers that can typically predict or project something, meaning you carry this specific gene, therefore you are at a X percent greater chance of developing XYZ disease and or you carry this marker, therefore you are very likely to respond well to Keytruda or you know, whatever the immunotherapy or, or targeted treatment is. That's where the focus on biomarkers has been. Where I see the opportunity and where I'm at the, the center of the opportunity is in not just single markers that predict or project, but combinations of biomarkers. They don't all have to be the same thing. They could be you know, an RNA, a messenger RNA, or a microRNA, or messenger RNA com combined with proteins. You can combine a lot of these different things. And if you find these unique combinations of biomarkers, and if you can string them together mathematically, you can not only just predict and project things, but you can definitively detect, definitively diagnose. You can use those combinations of things to detect earlier, diagnose easier, and treat better. And that's the opportunity that I'm exploiting. And, and that's really ultimately what a biomarker is. So if I'm explaining this to my 10-year-old boy who loves cars, I'd say, if you happen to have a V12, you're more likely to get into a car accident. Yeah, <laughs> that that's a, a good example. I'd say on the car analogy, there's two things you could also, you could also look at from from the DNA side, your actual genetic makeup, you could look at DNA almost like the blueprint to a Formula One race car. It tells you exactly where everything's supposed to be and what it should be doing. But you could look at the RNA, which the transcriptomics uh, as opposed to the genomics, and you look at the RNA and the RNA is, is telling you how that race car is doing on the racetrack. It's giving you the real-time readout of the car's performance, telling exactly what's happening in real time. And, and in, in healthcare, you know, that's a really powerful thing because that way you can look at these combinations of biomarkers and look at the way that they're being expressed. And it's telling you the patient's current state, you, you have this disease or you don't, you, you have stage one or stage two cancer based on the way these RNAs are, are being expressed or you don't. And so those are the types of things. So you're just taking it one step further than that and not just telling you where it's supposed to be and what it should be doing. You're actually saying this is how it's performing. Back with our guest after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So let's talk about like, you know, go to market. Like you have this great idea, you build this great team, you get all of the investors to back this this big vision and you need patience, right? You need really smart people over here, but you're ultimately looking at your end user, which is kind of a combination of a doctor, a payer, and a human being who's going to need your crap, right? So mm-hmm. where do you put the value of the actual human being patient that's going to benefit from the stuff you're making in the growth and development of the company? It, it starts from the absolute very beginning. So when I'm incubating a, a venture and I'm trying to figure out, you know, where is there a disease where it's really tough to you know, detect it or, or not possible to detect it early? Where is it really difficult to diagnose, takes a long time, costs a lot of money, there's a lot of risk involved? How is, you know, what does that journey look like? And I look at it, I think this is one of the benefits, Matt, because I'm not from industry I, and I'm just a human being looking at it as a human being, I I look at these problems. I look at the current standard of care and say, where can we make it better? Where are the bottlenecks? And if I were to get diagnosed with this tomorrow, what would my journey look like? What would that experience look like? And and when I've identified you know, what I think is a, a disease that should be that should, we should be focusing on, and I identify those bottlenecks, I find people who have been personally affected by them. The the sad truth is, I there's 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 no shortage of people that have you know, especially in my network, that have had lung cancer, breast cancer, um, that are that are living with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So I just I start by going to the patient and saying, what did your journey look like, and what where could it have been better? And this isn't always just about, you know, oh, I, I got a CT scan or I got an x-ray. A lot of times we're talking about the emotional aspect of it too. And, you know, what was the amount of time that went by between the first nodule that showed up on a chest x-ray and the time that you got, you went under your MRI. And, and when people come back and say, oh, it was two months or a month and a half, you just sit there and you you, you can start to think that must have been the most stressful month of your life. <laughs> and, and, and so there's, there's a lot of that human element that goes into it from the very beginning. But from the commercial, the go-to market, the productization, getting this into people's hands, I think about it in the context of something that I call, um, and I haven't trademarked it yet, <laughs> I don't know if I'm the only one saying it, but I like to think about it in the context of a solutions-based movement. So you have these wonderful movements that gain huge amounts of you know attention. You get people marching in the street, million, millions of people buying into you know raising awareness for something, no matter what it is. But more times than not, 
they fizzle out. And all of a sudden, you know, what felt like this, you know, white hot movement and opportunity, but six months later, you're like, where'd that go? What was that hashtag? What happened there? And people forget about it. And the number one reason why that happens is because they're not, in many cases, not offering a viable long-term solution to whatever that problem was. And so what I'm trying to do here is build that awareness from the very beginning of saying, do you know that if you had um, you know, shortness of breath and you thought you might have lung cancer, do you know what that process looks like? Do you know where the bottlenecks are? Here's how we could fix it. Here's how we could solve it. And getting people really excited that, yeah, we're not just you know raising awareness to something. We're raising awareness and we're attaching a solution to it. And my goal is to get patients so bought into that, that they're with us throughout that journey. Yes, it might take three years. It might take five years. It might take 10 years to get the product fully commercialized to a point where you could walk into Quest Labs and draw your blood and find your results. But if we can build out that sense of community from the very beginning with the patient and then complement that from the top down with foundations and with advisors and with the FDA and with all the payers, you get this really powerful bottoms up and top down combination. And that's where you really unlock the full potential to really make an impact on people's lives. All right. So let's focus on the liquid lung because I think that's an interesting, like people can relate to lung cancer. It's the number one killer in the country and cancer and blah, yeah. blah, blah. So not to dismiss about saying blah, 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 but in general. No, so so the, the whole mission of like the nonprofit space and ideally in well-intended human beings like yourself is to make cancer suck less and try not to get it. And yep. this isn't about like don't smoke and don't eat. No, it, it's like it's just going to happen no matter what. You you can't. Mm-hmm. The only prevention is don't own a pet and you'll never be a pet owner. There's your I just solved the problem <laughs> for the world. Pet ownership <laughs> prevention. OK, so that's simple. Done. We're just done. Good night, folks. So in, in the in the world of, you know, no, no one plans to get sick, as I say at the top of the show. And when you enter that shit happens, I have cancer store who's helping you know shit exists and who do you depend on? How do these diagnostics, I mean, this isn't chemo radiation surgery. This is like shit. It's like, it's like you need to go through the car wash to get clean before you fix whatever's wrong with the car. I don't, I'm, that was a horrible analogy. My whole point is that I'm rambling because when you're in that store, you don't know what to do. You know, yeah. So what if Quest can do this wonderful test for you? If you don't know it and your doctor doesn't know it, What's the solve? Mm, mm. That's the the awareness piece of the equation and and working with patients and payers and providers, people, uh, insurance companies and doctors. I mean, that that's really what the that's the trifecta of getting everybody to say, this is the technology. Here's how it works. Here's how it, you know, how it helps. Here's how it improves your outcome. And yeah, you, you make a good point about. You know, people don't want to get cancer. The goal here is to just, you know, if you do, just make it, just try to make it not suck. And I'll tell you, the number one way to make any cancer not suck is to catch it early. If you catch it early, the whole entire experience is better. Now, listen, it still sucks because, you know, when you talk about any cancer, but let's point to breast cancer for a minute, the standard of treatment for breast cancer, almost regardless of what stage you have, is uh, what somebody, I, I read this in an article somewhere, it's, uh, they call it slash poison and burn. Cut off your breasts, pump you full of chemo and radiate the hell out of it. And so, yeah, you've got about 100% survival rate if if you do that. But who the hell wants to cut off their breasts and get pumped full of chemo and get burned to hell with radiation? So it, it still does suck. But 
the earlier you catch it, the less it sucks and the better your outcomes and the lower the cost. And all of that is is really the game changer in terms of, um, you know, the next step. No, I, I agree. I mean, and I, I'm coming out of the pediatric cancer world and the young adult cancer world where like nothing is really detectable because you can't get the mammograms, you can't get the colonoscopies, maybe Cologuard works, who knows? And testicular cancer is only as good as the doctor taking you seriously or like colon cancer is Crohn's disease or whatever. But writ large, you're right. You know, Fran Drescher famously said it shouldn't have been her to first say it, but she said it, that stage one's the cure. In an ideal world, yes. So I like the fact that we have better systems now. And let me just preface this by saying 25 years ago, you kind of just died. So these are good problems mm-hmm. to have. Let's mm-hmm. level set where we're at right now in general. But let's level up. But we, but we have to level up. And so, you know, yes, we're so much better off today than we were 25 years ago, but there's so much room for improvement. And I'll give you a, a, a quick example on lung cancer. So you've had great recommendations and guidelines just recently uh, come out of the um, USPSTF. It's the task force that that creates the guidelines for screening and, and early detection, things like that. And, and they came out with a new draft recommendation, first time in I think about seven years, that expands the eligibility criteria for people based on their age and their smoking history to be eligible for annual low-dose CT screening. So yeah, you, you think you kind of fit that profile of a high-risk patient for lung cancer based on your age, your smoking history. You can just go and get a an annual low-dose CT scan and try to catch it early. And so that's great, but you're still looking at the problem at the body through this kind of 3D imaging. And, and yeah, the resolution is, is so much better today on these machines than it was years ago. The radiation exposure is so much lower, but you're only getting one view of, of that of what's happening to that patient. And it's very much a kind of two and three dimensional view. What I'm saying is to level things up, we're not trying to get rid of these machines at all. The, 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 the goal here is not to replace the current standard of care and technologies. It's to enhance them and radically improve it and insert non-invasive biomarker testing at those different pain points. So you rule more people into imaging that belong there and you rule more people out of unnecessary procedures and biopsies. You cover both ends of that spectrum, but there's so much valuable information that comes out of a CT scan or out of an MRI, but you can combine that data and that information with the biomarker measurements for a much fuller picture of what's happening with that patient. And that's really where you start to make a more meaningful impact to those high-risk patients so that you can catch them in stage one. And, and you know, Fran is right. Stage one is essentially the cure. Right. So it's not just like try to not get cancer. It's try to not have chemotherapy if possible. Yeah. Yep. So let me ask you one more question. This goes back to my lack of understanding of investor strategy and investor philosophies in health startups. And that goes back to, and you you kind of clarified it in the earlier segment, but the role of the patient and the role of the nonprofit to start to get that basic consumer sentiment journey experience for the disease you're trying to create a product service for. And where I've seen this happen on the stupid cancer side, when I ran that organization for about 13, 14 years, was that these really well-intended, well-meaning startups that have great tech that patients should know about simply want to just tap the community and say, hey, tell all your community members with breast cancer about this great thing. We want to hear from them. But the fact that the nonprofit has, you know, 400,000 people in their community to tap for you is because they're funded to have 
that community. So where is the philanthropic aspects of early startups that are investor-backed on the value of donating money to the nonprofits to sustain them so they have the community you need to tap? Hmm. Uh, so, so reframe that briefly for me. Are you talking? Are you asking, you know, how to increase donorship to the nonprofits so that it all comes full circle more? Is that the question? Well, or typically, you- it's like, well, we don't have a budget for charity. We just want your people. Mm. Mm. Oh, interesting. I, I, I see your, um, I see your question there. Um, you know, I think this is where you start. You could start to get creative in certain ways. First off, I mean, there should be a budget for it. <laughs> and and I Hallelujah. think Hallelujah. Right. I think but I, I do think you're seeing, you know, this is back to my finance days and, and before I left um left the asset management industry, it was very clear that the demand for ESG funds, um, you know, socially responsible funds and, and strategies was on the rise. And that's only taken off in the last two and a half years. So you are starting to see a really nice shift of um, you know, investors that are saying, look, we're happy to invest in great technologies where we think we can earn a, a strong ROI, but but we really want to know that there's a social component to that and that you're helping, you know, really advance things beyond just what's happening inside this company and beyond just the ROI. So I do think that there's a an opportunity for the foundations and for the venture funds and for the entrepreneurs to come together and strike a happy, you know, a happy balance and happy medium there. It's a great suggestion. I genuinely love your just un- unabashedly authentic approach to this and, and this idea of like, yeah, we can do well and do good. That's kind of refreshing to hear from private sector venture guys. I, I'm not used to hearing that. So A, kudos and bully on you for that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And I, I just, again, just to wrap this up, I love that you're here to not just, you know, jokingly make cancer suck less, but if you can avoid the horribleness of the worst of cancer treatment, let's try to make that happen. Yep. And I think it's a matter of just looking at the problem differently. You know, one of the biggest issues with healthcare is that most people in that system have been in that system for their entire lives, for their entire career. And I think it helps that I'm coming at this from a different lens. I'm coming at it as a human being, um, but I'm also coming at it and saying there's different ways that we can do this. It doesn't have to be done the same old way. It doesn't take a PhD to realize that something that takes 10 years costs a billion dollars and fails nine out of 10 times probably could use a new approach. <laughs> it doesn't It doesn't take much to do that. And so I'm trying to look at it and say, where can we use data and technology and capital and integrate those things in a way where we can compress the time, the cost and the risk, but still accelerate the value. And I will tell you just, you know, one one concept that's really important to me is I think we're 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 in this era and I'm I'm leading that within my companies where the role that human beings play in this process is different. We're not eliminating the need for people whatsoever, but we are sort of moving them to a different part of the process. Here's what I mean by that. Instead of spending six or seven years in a wet lab looking through a microscope with you know, one or 10 or 100 you know, really, really smart scientists with their own domain sort of bias and, and their own kind of thoughts and their own experiences, we can just replace a big chunk of that process with data and completely objective mathematics and technology. But that doesn't replace the need for people. So when I discover a biomarker because it simply emerges 
out of our, our technology, out of our software. I'm not a scientist, so I can't make a whole lot of sense of it. So I need advisors. I need key opinion leaders. I need people to, that I can show this to and say, hey, here's what we found. And we found it really fast and really efficiently, but we know nothing about it. Can you help us make sense of this? And it's the people that help us accelerate the growth and the accelerate the commercialization, accelerate the adoption. So I think all of that comes together and, allow, and allows us to, you know, like you said, to generate a good ROI because we're doing things faster, more efficiently, but do good and, and get and speed the innovation to patients. That's the primary goal. Marty Kaiser, bio entrepreneur, founder of Ivy Bio Holdings, Liquid Lung, Hep Gene Mammogram, and I'm sure a whole lot of other things that sound like they belong in the Mall of the Simpsons. Thank you for joining me <laughs> on Out of Patience. More to come, my friend. Be well. Thank you, Matthew. Take care. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.